Hey guys, welcome to the You Make the Scene podcast. My name is Josh, and this is episode number 76. This week on the episode, I've got a great conversation with Darrow. He is this kind of pop punk outfit, uh, solo artist, really. Um, It's hard to put him in a box because he's still defining his sound and tweaking things and takes so much inspiration from a wide variety of genres and whatnot. And so, again, it's really hard to place him in one box. And, you know, if you've listened to me for any amount of time, I really try not to do the genre thing anymore just because of that. Um, But we had a great conversation. We talked about a lot of stuff, uh, such as finding his sound. Um, He had to relearn how to sing because of a brain tumor scare that was causing issues with his jaw as well. And he had to have that surgically repaired and his mouth wired shut for a while. And we get really kind of in depth about that in this conversation. And it was a really cool story. Uh, We also touched on kind of how hospitalization affected his mental health. Um, That is going to be a topic that we go more in depth on on the second podcast that we have called Musicians for Mental Health. Um, You guys should be able to go now, find that. Go ahead and like and subscribe. Episodes begin July, so keep an eye out for those. But we're going to have Darrow back on, and he and I are going to discuss kind of how hospitalization really can morph your mental health and you know not necessarily in a positive way so um we talked about that a little bit like i said and so much more i had a great time talking to him and really appreciate him taking the time to have the conversation um definitely think you guys need to go check out his new single called signing out but first listen to this conversation that i had with darrow because i think there's a lot of really cool stories that he was able to tell such as being a first generation asian american uh his parents are cambodian and just kind of some of the struggles that they went through and and whatnot it's really an interesting history that he has so for now let's dive into my conversation with darrow uh, to start off with, I do ask the same boring ass question every time. Uh, and that's simply the introduction, man. Go ahead and introduce yourself. Tell a little background on kind of how you got started in music. Sure. So my name is Darrow and I am an Asian American pop punk emo alternative rock artist. I honestly don't even know what the genre is anymore. Um, because that's actually something that I've struggled with a lot is trying to kind of fit my music into a genre. Um, not, I'm like, not to, not to sound like one of those, oh, we transcend genres artists. No, that's actually not the intention at all. It would be a lot easier to market my music if I actually knew what genre my music fits in. Um, and there, because like, I have some songs that are definitely pop punk. I have some songs that are definitely emo and I have some songs that are definitely alternative rock. And then there are songs that kind of cross all of those. And so that makes it a little tough. Um, but I guess to explain why my music is so eclectic like that is mostly because uh when i was growing up i grew up in york pennsylvania Um, i am a first generation asian american um, and so my parents are cambodian american and my dad was in a cambodian wedding band and i don't know if you've ever met a cambodian before but we stay in very small close tight communities Um, generally when you find one you'll find a large family in one pop in like one area. So like in my hometown, our family takes up 100% of the Cambodian population in our town. Um, and so there's very, so very few of us and like most Cambodians fled to the United States during sometime in the seventies during the Vietnam war. Cause there was a crazy like, um, communist movement going on, like civil war going on within the country itself. And there were a lot of people fleeing. Um, and so my parents, uh, they fled over here. They they actually, well, they were slaves when they were like 10 and like six years old, you know, like they were slaves on the farm or whatever during the, the genocide. Um, and they were not, they didn't meet each other until they came to the United States. And so um, 
when I was growing up, I any of this is not history to me. Um, they didn't teach it in schools because why would the U.S. teach about that? Um, and my parents didn't talk about it like at all. And so I, I honestly didn't find out about this until I was like 20 years old. Like I, I was aware, I was aware yeah. that there was like this, you know, this huge genocide that happened in the seventies. And I was aware of like the civil war and stuff that happened, but I was not aware of the extent that it happened to my parents, which explains so much. It explained why we grew up in poverty. It explained why, um, my family was like, they were so close to, to each other and they were so stuck, I guess, stuck in their, in their ways. Um, I grew up American. Like I grew up 100% American. So like, I was like, I want, you know, like I want the, the razor scooter. I want like, I want, you know what I mean? I like, I like to listen to American music. I was into hip hop and like R and B early growing up because we grew up in the city. There was a very, very urban, densely urban demographic. Um, and so my, like getting back to what I was saying before, my dad was in a Cambodian wedding band. Um, and they used to rehearse every Sunday. Um, and I used to sit at the top of the stairs of the basement where they rehearsed. And I would sit there and listen to them practice every Sunday. And I remember Sundays was always band practice and then football. So it was, it'd be like band practice in the morning. And then I would sit there and listen to them. And then the entire band would like finish their practice. And then they would go watch football. And when they went to go watch football, I would go downstairs and I would like bang on the drums, you know, right. and I didn't realize what was happening, but like I was trying to play what I just listened to them play. So like, in a sense, I was sort of ear training myself to like kind of play by memory. Yeah. Um, I was like five or six years old when it was happening. Um, and so I was doing that for a while, but it wasn't until I was like 13 that I like started playing the guitar. Um, and when I picked up the guitar, it was like, okay, now there's a whole, it's a whole different thing. Um, I almost quit like twice in the very, very beginning. Part of it was cause I had no guidance and no teacher. Um, cause I was, I was like completely self-taught in the very beginning. Um, and I kind of like forego trying to like learn properly, I guess is what some schools of thought would be, but I ended up just like, I was like, I'm just going to learn songs. Um, and the most tried and true method of learning any instrument is learning songs. Um, cause otherwise there's no point. So I did that for a very long time. Um, and when I got, when I picked up the guitar was when I started getting into more like alternative and rock music. And that's when I really got into like pop punk and emo music and, and stuff like that. Um, and so I started practicing a lot, like a lot until I was able to get into music school. Um, so then I went to music school, um, and I have just been practicing and working my ass off ever since, ever since I went to, to, to college, I was just like, wow, this is like a real thing. I've, I've already committed all of this like student debt money into learning music, I better make something out of it. Yeah, and I, I think the cool thing that hopefully fans will like really pay attention to is, like you said, like obviously you knew about the genocide and the Civil War and stuff yeah. like that, but like knowing how close to home it really hit wasn't a thing until you got older and could actually start kind of finding out yourself. Yeah, and I think I think the reason that I bring that up is whether to protect you, I think that almost was like a sheltering of sorts, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I can imagine it being so, I mean, how can you tell like a 10 year old that like you were a slave, you know what I mean? Right. Right. Especially in a, in a new country where you've learned about maybe not quite yet at 10 years old, but eventually you're going to learn about, you know, slavery that yeah. happened in the U S and how just such an atrocity it was. Yeah to think, my God, my parents were in this situation. It, it's unfathomable. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was crazy. Um, I, I don't exactly remember what prompted my dad to kind of tell me all of this stuff. Um, but we, we, it was, it was probably the most in-depth conversation I think I've ever had with my father. Um, and it was just like, I don't know. Well, one, I found out that I had a lot more family than I ever knew. I, right. I found out that I had aunts and uncles that I had never heard of that he had never mentioned before. And some of them are still alive and in the United States. So, and I've yet to meet most of them. Um, cause the issue was when, when 
Um, so the reason they came to the United States was be, usually there would be people in the United States or organizations or whatever that would sponsor refugees yeah. to come over to the United States. Um, and they couldn't bring my entire, my dad's side of the family, they couldn't bring them over all at the same time. So there would be different sponsors and it would, they were, they were essentially like brought over and scattered across the United States, which I can't imagine how like terrifying that is to be like, yeah. like 12 years old and pulled away from all of your siblings to be put in like a random city in a random state in a different country, knowing your siblings are halfway across the other country. It's just, yeah. I can't, I cannot imagine that. No, and, and you know, like, even the people that are listening, like, to make it relatable, I guess, like, the foster care system that we have in America, like, sometimes yeah. families get ripped apart like that. And oh, you don't, yeah. you don't, like, really think about, like you said, the, the, the gravity, right? Like, you have a brother or a sister or whatever, and now you're taken to the new country and put thousands of miles apart you may or may not ever see them again yeah and this is like you know 70s so like phones were like dial you know what i mean like rotary phones back then i guess no internet so yeah to keep up with anybody if they moved you're out of luck unless they wrote you like yeah that's insane yeah it's crazy i i still wonder about that like i said how did you even know where they are like how did you end up finding out where they live and he was like, we just, you know, we just found each other and wrote letters. And I was like, what? Had, it still doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, no, I, it, especially back in the seventies, like you said, cause it's like nowadays with social media and stuff, sure. I can jump on mm-hmm. Facebook or whatever and, and search for people and be like, oh yeah, that is my cousin or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, but in the seventies, like, are you just getting phone books from other states and picking and choosing, hoping that's the right person? <laughs> I have no, you know, what it probably was, it was, they probably found out, uh, who sponsored their sibling, you know, and there was probably like some sort of organizational, like track record or something. I'm, I'm assuming that's like, I was the only way to think of it, you know? Yeah. But even then, like, you know, the, the risk or the chance that what if their sponsor family wants nothing to do with extra contact? Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like they could have kept yeah. them apart and no contact yeah and and like you know who knows if their family is even a good sponsor in family you know what i mean like there's probably countless uh refugees that were brought over here that just ended up becoming in like sex slaves you know in, in underground sex work which is definitely a thing for sure yeah, absolutely and even even aside from like as horrific as that is don't get me wrong but like even just getting a, a bad sponsor family that you know, just isn't really interested in it. Like, cause I'm sure there's yeah. government perks and stuff like extra tax credits yeah. and stuff. They're just yeah, feeding yeah, off yeah. the system. And who Obviously. knows if they're actually taking care of, of that family member. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's nuts, man. That's a probably, a, I don't even want to say probably that is definitely the most interesting, like <laughs> youth story I've had so far. Well, you know, I, I don't, I have seen, I haven't seen, um, but I know you have a pretty impressive like track record of other guests. So I, I may not be someone from yours truly or like octopus montage, but I have an interesting backstory. So I'm going to, I'm going to flaunt that. Yeah, we got to roll with that part at least. I mean, yeah. as crazy as some of the other artists that I've talked to over my entire journalism career, like never once have I heard yeah, my family was slaves. Yeah. What? 60 not even 60 years ago at this point, like that's yeah. it's mind-blowing. Yeah, yeah, no. And there's a lot of music to be written about that. I have yet to tap into it. Um because right now I'm still I'm still fueled from the health issues that I've had in like the last 5 years. So like there's so much like stuff that I can write about. Um and I just haven't like, I haven't reached that level yet. Cause this was so recent to me and it's so fresh in my mind, you know? Yeah. So, um, let's talk a little bit about kind of, we talked about it early, but, um, finding the sound, right? So you say you haven't really found your genre yet. Um, I agree. You kind of fit in a few different boxes and whatnot, but at the same time, like over the 
17 years that I've been doing music journalism, I honestly try not to use the genre titles anymore anyway, mm-hmm. um, simply for the fact that so many bands are so fluid throughout different genres and there's so much um, inspiration drawn from from all these different acts that you can label a band like Octopus Montage, you know, you could say, oh, they're they're heavy rock. Yeah, well, but are they? Because they've got pop punk songs. They've exactly they've yeah, got yeah. metalcore songs. Like, yeah. they have what are they? Sounds. Yeah. Um, let's talk about kind of where you're at in your journey. Um, obviously, you're experimenting with your sound. Grand scheme of things, what do you want your sound to be like, or is it something that's very organic for you? So it it really depends. Um, it depends on like what I'm inspired by in the exact moment that I'm writing, um, which I think is very, is often the case for a lot of artists. Um, and I have to say like for being a musician slash artist, I have, I'm very bad at keeping track of like what's new and like, you know what I mean? Cause there's so many bands and there's so many good bands. Right now. Um, and like, aside from just like anything that falls under the punk slash rock genre, there's so much good hip hop and there's so much good pop music. Um, so that like, I'm still like catching up from albums that came out years ago. Um, and sometimes that'll be the thing that triggers like a, an inspiration for a new song. So right now it's what, what I'm listening to a lot of right now is a lot of emo rap and a lot of like modern pop punk, which is, really starting to become more trap inspired, you know, a lot of MGK and a lot of young blood. Um, I love nothing nowhere. Um, basically anything that Travis Barker has done, I've heard, (laughs) I think anybody's heard that. Um, but like, it seems, it seems like my music is starting to head in that direction only because I'm listening to a lot of it and it's really inspiring. Like, I think right now my absolute favorite song, is Death Wish by Stan Atlantic yeah. with no- dude that song slaps. I was getting ready to ask you when you mentioned Nothing Nowhere. Dude. I was about to say, dude. have you heard Death Wish? That that song is my favorite song the entire year so far. I listen to it like ten times a day. It's so good. Another one to check out if you haven't yet. Uh, Some forty one and Nothing Nowhere did a remix of Catching Fire. I heard it. Yeah, it's, it's dope, dude. So good. So. So Joe from nothing nowhere is on fire this year and anything that he touches turns into gold, which is awesome. Um, so I would love to work with him someday, but that is kind of where I'm leaning to. And I actually like have a couple of songs that are already like, that, like they would fit on a playlist with death wish. Like there's, there's one song that I haven't released again. I probably won't until September, or October. Um, but it's one that I did with Chris, Chris Crummett. Uh-huh. Um, and out of like, we've done, we did like three or four songs with him earlier in the year. Um, Cause I, I was really testing the waters to see like how it was to work with not just Chris as a producer, but any producer. Cause this is my first time right. going to a producer. Um, and it was never looking back. Going to do it 100% of the time from now on. Um, <laughs> it's, it's changed the game changer. Um, but the one song that I went to him with, it was a demo. Um, and man, it's my favorite song. And I've been, I've been listening to it for like six months solid and not a single person has heard it yet because it's not released. And I just wish people could hear it, but like, I have to go through the process of releasing the other songs first. Um, and yeah. And it's almost like, I know like, like artists tend to like change sounds like from album to album. But for right. me, it happens a lot sooner. It happens from single to single. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's my music is really leaning more towards like the emo pop punk trap sound. Yeah. So an interesting fact, you talked about how much music gets released, right? So I just talked to a band from, well, the lead singer of a band called Written by Wolves. They're from New Zealand. Um, you should check them out because they're stellar. Right. But um <laughs> but we were talking about, you know, just how much music comes out and get lost in the mud sometimes with mm-hmm. there's so much out there. This the crazy stat we looked up from February, according to Spotify, sixty thousand songs a day get pushed to Spotify. 
Wow. I remember like a year ago, it was like 40,000. Yeah. 60,000 yeah. songs a day. So when you talk about, you know, A, how much music's coming out to just inspire you, it's insane. Yeah. But also at the same time, what people need to realize is that's also what you have to compete with. Yep. Because now I have to put out a song that catches your attention out of 60,000 songs that release that day. Yeah. Yeah. It's insane. No, it's, it's a mountain. <laughs> It's, it's a mountain. Like I, it's actually like just pure anxiety when I think about it like that. Oh yeah. So like <laughs> I often try not to, uh, but it's always there in the back of my head. I'm just like, how do I make this release compare to 60,000 tracks? Most of which like, to be fair, most of them probably will never get streamed. Um, there are right. just crazy statistics. That's like, um, I think like, I, I don't, I'm not going to even try to attempt the numbers cause I, I would just be bullshitting it. But a majority of the tracks that are uploaded never really get streamed. So a very small portion of those like are actually promoted and pushed. Yeah. Uh, but then out of those songs, it's like how many of those are, are are distributed by major labels with crazy pockets of marketing and promo. And then even the ones that are not major label backed are backed by large indie labels, um, yeah. which is very big for this particular genre of music. Um, yeah. And so it's like, not only am I competing against 60,000, but I'm competing against 60,000, including major labels and indie labels. And it's just like, damn. And it's one of those things like to do, I don't know the exact stats, but let's, we'll do easy math. Yeah. Um, so 60,000 songs, let's say a third of them never get streamed. So mm -hmm. there's 20,000 out, but then that other third or that next third is major labels, your big pop artists like Justin Bieber and whatnot that no offense, but it's Justin Bieber. Like nobody's going to compete with him. Right. Like he puts out a song. There's maybe five people that even come close to the number of streams that he gets in a day. So you've got that to compete with. And then that final third is hopefully, um, the genres that you're not a part of, right? Like hopefully that's the jazz music or the, you know, the bluegrass or something that, Right. You're not directly competing with, but that still leaves 20,000 songs theoretically per day that you're going, Hey, I want some attention too. And I think the big thing is like, you're right. It absolutely is anxiety, you know, pumping. But I think the big thing is not necessarily to shout louder than the others. It's to be more relatable than the others. Because how many times have we seen yeah. pop hits that are great for that one summer and then you hear it like two years later and you're like, oh yeah, I remember that. Exactly. But you want to be the artist that is, hey, let's put on Daro and just run it all year. Yeah, yeah so that's that's actually a thing um, that I, I kind of knew in the back of my head. Um, but it's one of the things that I've been stressing more than ever this year and that's just engaging with audience and fans. And I, I almost yeah. don't like to call it fans uh, because for some reason it sounds pretentious to me. Cause like, I don't know, I, it, it feels weird for me to say that I have fans. Um, Cause like I talk to everybody. So like, right. I, I like literally my, my DM Instagram message inbox, like goes down by like two or 300 messages of individual people that I'm, trying to constantly keep in contact with. And yeah. I don't want to say I know them on a first name basis, but like I, you know, I know them on an, a username basis where like, I'll see their username. I was like, Oh, right. I know this person. I've spoken to this person. Like I have like a direct rapport with this person. And I like, it's, it takes a lot of power to do and keep track of, but by far it is the most, I think the most important thing that I have really leveled up on this year. I, it's, it's crazy. The amount of like the amount of times that, that people have like, for example, tagged me in something. And it's always surprising to me when someone like, you know, shares my song and they tag me in it. And I've never heard of this person before. I was like, Oh, they're a bot. They're, they're a freaking bot. Right. You know? <laughs> they're a real person and they'll tag me in it. And then like, I'll like, you know, I'll, and you know, whenever someone tags you on Instagram, you get it a message in your inbox. So right. I'll, I'll like it. I'll, I'll reshare it. And then I'll like, I'll send them a little note, dude, thank you so much for, streaming it how'd you like the song et cetera, et cetera. and like i would say maybe 10 percent of the time i do that they responded like dude i never 
I didn't think that you would respond to me. I can't believe you replied to me. And I was like, what? Like, why would you, why would I not do that? It's like, I'm not Billie Eilish, right? Like I understand (laughs) millions of DMs a day, I'm sure, but I'm just Darrow. So it's, it's always astounding to me when people respond to my messages with something like, I can't believe you actually responded to me. I never expected you to do that. I was like, of course I would. You just shared my music. Yeah. And that's something that I've brought up to other artists is the, that fan to fan interaction and the appreciation and gratitude, right? Like not saying Billie Eilish, you know, we're not going to trash talk her because she's insanely good. And I'm sure she does everything she she can to interact. But like, like you said, she's getting hundreds of thousands, if not millions of DMS a day. And so it's, impossible for her to reply to everybody and it it shouldn't be expected from a quote-unquote fan base that oh if i message this person they're definitely going to message me back but i think that showing that appreciation and gratitude is what builds the fan base that much stronger and bigger because now you've got fans um we're just going to keep using that word but you've got fans (laughs) that you've interacted with that definitely if they weren't showing it your music to their friends before definitely are now because hey this dude was you know we've we've chatted a few times about his new music or whatever like you need to check him out and then that just expands that because now they want to be a part of this little community yeah like that's you know i i sort of i sort of got this lesson from it's, it's a few different sources everyone always says like definitely engage with your audience but um I think there was one, there was one podcast that I was listening to that really, really rung as like a message for me specifically for this. I think it was on the URM podcast, maybe, um, with Johnny Minardi from Electro Records and I think Jesse Cannon and, and Finn McKenty and et cetera, et cetera. And there was, there was one, there was one, um, little tidbit story that Johnny Minardi was talking about. And he was on tour with a band. I don't remember what band it was, but he was on tour with the band. He was on their band bus on their um, tour van. And just as they were about to pull away from their, de- like from the venue they just played at, there were people that were coming outside and they were trying to like knock on the door of the tour van uh, to interact with the band. And they were like, they were tired, they were exhausted and they didn't want to come out. And Johnny was like, no, you go out there and you talk to them. You, you sign their shirt, you sign whatever. Cause that kid, is if you do this now, that kid will be a fan for 30 years plus. And they'll always yeah. talk about them when you came out of your van to sign their shirt and they're going to share that with other people and that can exponentially grow. And I was just like, damn, so true. So like, yeah, ever since I heard that. Yeah. I think especially a story like that, you know, we live in such a digital age now that even Instagram DMS and, and whatnot are important, but you know, like when live music kicks back up, I remember being a younger kid that was like sitting outside the venue, like waiting, hoping to catch a glimpse. And so definitely, you know, anytime you get an artist to sign a CD or a shirt or whatever, like you're going to school the next day being like, guys, check out what happened this weekend. Like, this is what's up. And whether you try to show them the music or not, like inevitably some of those people are going to go home and be like, well, who's this band? Like that, they sound pretty cool. Like they, they signed a shirt for him or whatever. So then, like you said, it's exponentially growing that fan base because of one, you know, yeah, you're tired, but it took five minutes to interact with those people. Exactly. Yeah. Which could, which could literally imprint them for the rest of their life. And and especially, you know, at kind of your stage, the indie stage nowadays, like who knows who those people really are? Like that could be the kid of some A&R person or whatever and you may have just yeah. made that kid's day now dad is going to check out you and be like oh shit we need to sign this dude like a he made my kid happy but b he's really got some cool shit you know like the the power of networking whether you realize you're actually doing it or not is immeasurable yeah no it is there's no way to ever know like who you're talking to you know yeah. so like I, I always just try to put on, I mean, like I'm generally a really nice person. I never, I, I don't consider myself a mean or like rude person right. anyway. Um, you know, but there are days where you're just really tired. You don't want to talk to anyone. Like you don't want to, yeah. you don't want to respond to a message. 
Um, but like, yeah. So I always try to put on like my, my, this is, I'm a really nice, relatable person face, you know, cause that's yeah. like the core of who I am. Yeah. And, and again, you know, at your stage being an indie artist, like we said earlier, you know, before we are going to be in the episode, um, you've got your, your standard day job. So like yep. you could have a bad day at work, you know, just the rudest bunch of people have interacted with you, whatever, and be down. So it's easy to be like, oh, I'm not touching Instagram today. Like yeah. I, I just, I'm not going on there. I'm not messing with anybody because I can't deal with anymore. So to, to even just take again, five, 10 minutes to jump on and be like, look, I got to reply to at least two messages or, you know, like some comments or whatever it is. That stuff is huge for growth. Yeah. And you know what? Like it actually, it happens way more often than you think. Um, <laughs> because yeah. especially now during like this weird transition of COVID that we're in, um, work has become more stressful. And on top of that, I have the, the added health issue thing. So like, I, it's so lame and silly, but I could literally miss my medication for like an hour a day and I would just feel off for the rest of the day, you know? Yeah. Um, or like I could just have a really bad phone call with my insurance, like, like my, my health insurance who will just like deny something for a stupid reason. Like, Oh, the, the office was trying to send a pre-authorization for your medication and they just spelled your name wrong. So we have to deny it. Like something yeah. silly like that will just ruin my month, you know? Yeah. And like, in spite of that, you still gotta, you still gotta talk to people. Yeah. So let, let's dive into that a little bit. We did, we touched on it before the episode portion of this conversation started, but you know, mm -hmm. over the last couple of years, you've had some pretty serious health concerns. Um, yeah. let, let's talk in a little more in depth about kind of the mentality of it, because it is so impactful. Like we were talking before, um, I went through totally different than yours. I went through a horrible reaction to COVID, uh, nearly died, got lifelined, spent 46 days in the hospital, um, had to relearn how to walk myself. Um, you know, kind of relearned how to talk, like I had a trach tube, so I could kind of talk, but it just wasn't normal. Yeah. Um, you know, all that sort of stuff. Relearn how to eat food for God's sakes yeah. to make sure my throat muscles were right, you know? Mm -hmm. So yours being, to me, like mine was sudden and, and scary in that sense, but yours was a, a mass that was on your brain. And so like, let's talk about how much worse that was. I, and I don't mean to laugh, but you know, as oh, well as I totally do in these situations, it's <laughs> like, you have to, Yeah. how much worse was it to, to get back the news that, Oh, there's something on your brain. We don't know what it is yet, Yeah. but it'll be okay. Like just take time. Like, what? <laughs> so for, I don't want to say it was worse. Um, it was just very different. Everything was just different. Um, so for starters, I, there's, there's a couple of like, there's some context that goes into the night of my diagnosis that makes it so much more ridiculous. Um, one being like, I had just finished grad school, right? So I, I was studying abroad in Spain and I was getting my master's degree in performance. And, um, and I had just spent the last six months recording my first EP, right? And this was also six months after I had jaw surgery. And the reason I had jaw surgery was because of something that the brain tumor caused, even though I hadn't, I didn't know that I had a brain tumor at the time. Right. So, so, so if we rewind like seven months prior to the brain tumor thing, I was in the middle of my master's degree program and I had a really, really bad underbite. And it wasn't one that I was born with. Uh, my teeth were fine up until I was like 21, 22. And then gradually my jaw just started, I guess, enlarging or growing. It, can, it just kept growing to the point where I had a really bad underbite and I was basically unable to, to like chew food properly. Like things would just fall out of my mouth all the time. Um, it was frustrating um, and it was very, very embarrassing, I guess, because I'm not used to looking that way. And it was so gradual. Yeah. It was it's such a gradual change that you don't really notice it until it's like you look at a picture of yourself five years ago and you're like, wow, I have changed a lot. Um, post puberty too. So 
I was in Spain and I was like, you know what? I'm going to nip this in the butt. I'm going to get this corrected right now. Like, I don't care how much I'm going to have to suffer through this. Like, I don't want to deal with this until I'm like 40 or 35. Like, right. like, and, and part of it was because I was in, I was in music school because I wanted to be an artist and I was like, I'm not going to be an artist dealing with this stuff. So I better do this before I graduate school and like enter the real world, I guess, or the music industry or whatever you want to call it. Of course, it was a very naive way of thinking at the time. Um, but like I went to get that jaw surgery done and it was a really, really bad decision to get it done by myself. Um, it was bad, dude. I, (laughs) I remember going in at night, my mom was calling me. She was like, let me come visit you in Spain and take care of you. I was like, mom, you can't even read English. How are you going to read Spanish? Like, so I was like, you're going to get lost in the Madrid airport and I'm going to have to leave my hospital bed to go find you. Like, like it's not going to work like that. So I was like, I'll be fine. Just let me take the surgery. Like, I'm not going to feel anything though. They'll, they'll put me on anesthesia and the doctor will take care of me. Um, and it was not fine. I did the surgery and I woke up and I felt the first thing I felt was my mouth was properly shut, but it felt very odd. Um, because my muscles that were like, you know, the muscles that were surrounding my jaw at that point were used to my jaw being a certain way. And then when they went in and did the jaw surgery, they went in and it it was a double jaw surgery. So they, 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 they broke my bottom and top jaw into six different pieces. And then they removed bone from the bottom part and they pushed it back and they rotated the top jaw and pulled it forward to correct my bite. And then they sealed it all together with titanium plates. Um, and then when they did that, they sewed it all shut or they wired it shut with like wiring on my braces at the time. And so my mouth was completely wired shut and, um, and it felt right or the teeth felt right. The muscles felt wrong. Right. And so not only that, but when that happens, a bunch of like, you just get gushes of nosebleeds from it because there's all this work done in the area. My, My nose was constantly bleeding and it would clog up and I couldn't breathe out of my nose. So like for the first like four hours, I was just like on the verge of suffocating because my mouth was closed and my lips were completely swollen. So no air could get in and out of my mouth and my nose was shut up. And so no air could get in, in and out of my nose. And so, and then I started bawling. Cause I was like, I was like, I can't breathe and I'm about to die. Yeah. Um, which made it worse because then I started snotting out of my nose and it was just like, it was, it was yeah. bad. It was that first night was like the roughest night. Um, and then I started swelling and it was really embarrassing. Um, and I just, I just stayed indoors for like a month straight. Cause I didn't want anyone to see my face. I looked like the nutty professor. It was so bad. Um, so like, and, and that, and so after that, I, I couldn't talk, I couldn't chew. Um, I was on all liquid diet for like six or seven months. Um, and that was like, I had to, and, and that's when I was trying to record an EP. So I, I would like, un, like I would detach the wires from my jaw to like try to sing. And I realized that I couldn't sing anymore. Like I just like, I didn't have control over my mouth. I'm actually, my face is numb from it, but like, I didn't have control over my vocals or anything. And that was rough dude. And, and so like I spent six months like trying to like get back to like singing and stuff. Um, so then I, you know, I get through it. I finish the school program. I, I record my EP and I graduate from school and I'm like, okay, great. I've got music recorded. I've got, I got this degree. I'm going to go back to the United States. I'm going to start a band and we're going to start touring. Right. That was my plan. I get home in two days. After, so like the last week before I left Spain, um, I started having visual problems, like peripheral vision problems. Yeah. And so I was like, this is weird. And I thought it was like my contact lens or something. So I would switch on my contacts and I would still have the same issues. So then I figured, oh, it must be something wrong with my eyes. I, I guess I should go see the, diet, the eye doctor. And so when I got home, I was like, I set up an appointment immediately. And they saw me the very next day. So it was on Monday. I got home on a Saturday. I went to the eye doctor on a Monday morning at 11 a.m. I show up and I ask him what's wrong with my eyes. And he does all these like tests on it. And he's like, there's nothing wrong with your eyes, but there's something behind your eyes that is like physically obtrusing something. So you need to go to that like ER right now. And I was like, is there like, like something wrong with my optic nerves? So I get to the ER and I wait for like nine hours. Cause that's how the ER is. Yeah. It's pretty gruesome. Um, and I get there and I get into the, I find like after waiting for nine hours, they, they finally bring me in and they start asking all these really weird questions. And like, like, have you ever like, 
had any weird bone growth issues? Have you ever had any weird joint issues? Have you had mood swings? And I was like, yes to all of these things, but this has nothing to do with my eyes. You know, so I was really confused. And then they started drawing blood for me. And they're like, okay, we're going to put you in the MRI. We're going to see what's going on. Um, and they finally did it. And so then when I'm in the MRI, I don't know if you ever had an MRI before, but they sometimes inject this thing called contrast, which mm -hmm. kind of dilates your blood vessels to a certain way. So it shows up in the MRI better, yeah. which I did. And I immediately broke out in hives. Um, so I found out inside the machine that I was allergic to the contrast that they were giving to me and they pulled me out immediately. They couldn't complete all the scans because I was breaking out in hives and that was annoying. Um, and so, so that's all set up what happens next. And basically they pull me out from the MRI, they get enough images from the MRI to see that there's like this golf ball sized mass at the bottom of my brain. Like it's four centimeters. And it's so big that it's physically suppressing my optic nerves, which is causing the eye issues. And I'm like, what the hell is it? They don't know. Um, we're still waiting on blood tests, they said. And we, we didn't get enough images. Um, and we have to get some more images to find out what's wrong with it. But it could be one of three things. It could just be a benign mass that's growing there. It could be fluid, like cerebral fluid, or it could just be cancer. And dude, they said the C word and like my, I just like my soul left my body. I, yeah. I checked out for the rest of the day. Um, and I was like, I, I honestly don't remember much after that moment. All I do remember, I do remember me asking them how to, how do we rule out cancer? Cause at that point, that's all I cared about was ruling right. out cancer. Cause brain cancer is like, that's the end of the game. Yeah. Um, and that's how I thought for the rest of the night. I thought my life is probably going to be over after this. Like I, they could, I, they could be operating on me in the morning for brain cancer and I could just never wake up. Um, and I was like, well, how do we rule out cancer? And they were like, well, we want to do it. We want to do a CAT scan. And I was like, immediately, let's go, let's just go do it right now. And they're like, well, we can't because you're allergic to this contrast. And we have to give you pre-medication to let it run in your system for nine hours before we can do the next scan. And I was like, I have to wait for nine hours to find out if it's cancer. Like just, out, and I straight up, I was like, knock me out. Like, just put me to sleep right now. I don't want to be awake right now. Yeah. And I remember like sitting there at night waiting for the anesthetic to kick in, just texting everybody. I was like, guys, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. This could be it. And it was so weird to text that to people because I was like, I was telling them, I was like, just want to let you know, like this, that, that, like, you've been a great friend. Like, I love you, et cetera, et cetera. And they were like, dude, you'll be fine. Just go to sleep. I'll talk to you tomorrow. And I was like, you do not understand what's going through my head right now. Yeah. And it was scary. And, it, and I didn't know who to talk to or how to confide in anybody. And it was just like such an isolating feeling. And so that was like, and, and the thing that to make everything worse, was I hadn't played a single show yet. Right. I, I, I released the one song. come true, you know? Yeah. I, I like, I, I was like, I'm about to like go play all these shows in, in, in the United States and like make a band and everything. And I get home and immediately find out that I have a brain tumor. And I'm just like, what? Like I just spent the last like nine years studying music and I haven't even released any music. And I'm like, am I literally about to die before I even like become like play any music? I just couldn't believe it. So luckily I'm still here, but, but that was, yeah, that was, um, but that's kind of what gave me that mentality of what we were talking about earlier about how like, dude, like, fuck it. Like we only have one life that we know of, et cetera, et cetera. Like I, like I, things could end at any moment and I never want going forward. I never want to regret not doing anything that I wanted to do. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, obviously my situation was, much, much different. Um, I was in the hospital for 46 days after going into the ER. Um, I was on sedatives and paralytics. So basically a medical coma for 20 or 21. I don't remember now, uh, of those days. So, you know, the, the thing that I definitely want to talk to you more about, um, and I'll hit you up after this and I'll talk to the girls over at big picture because I think you'll be great for, I'm starting a second podcast. I heard. Yeah. Um, yeah. so we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more later, but, um, 
the isolating feeling, you know, like there were times after I woke up and was much more aware and, and cognizant of what was going on that, you know, I'd, I'd lay in that hospital bed some nights and just what, what the fuck is happening? You know, like I, I'm better quote unquote, but everything that I've been through. And like I said earlier, like I had to relearn how to walk, yeah. relearn how to eat food, all that sort of stuff. And it's like, when, when this all happened, it was earlier this year. So I'm 36 now. I got out of the hospital and had a birthday. Um, so I guess I win there. Yeah. But, you know, like I, 35 years old and I woke up in a hospital bed and they're like, Hey, you're not going to be able to walk right away. Like you're going to need assistance and you're going to have to have this. And I'm like, I, and I can't talk to them because I've got the trach tube. Yeah. So I, I'm just in my mind going, what the fuck is happening? You know? Um, and I think that's a lot where you were at too. Like, you don't understand the amount of pressure you just put on me by telling me, Hey, you may have cancer. We won't know until after we give you these drugs, it's going to take a day for everything to happen. Like, don't, don't fucking tell me that. Like yeah, you just exactly. made everything so much worse. Yeah. Just tell me it's cancer when it's cancer. Otherwise say you don't know what it is yet, but yeah, no, there's a few things we don't want to speculate yet. Let's work on getting these tests ran and we'll, we'll narrow it down from there because, you know, like obviously mine, they knew pretty early it's COVID. Yeah. Um, but like, so the extreme part of mine to kind of wrap up my story, I get to the hospital. I had 5% O2 saturation. So for people that aren't aware, I was essentially dead according yeah, to my like blood. Brain dead. Yeah. So, um, I walked in under my own power. I checked myself into the ER. Um, I had a buddy that, yeah, I had a buddy that drove me. Um, and we'll get into the the full details of it on the other podcast when you and I do that. Cause I think, I think you and I can give a a unique perspective on how hospitals affect your mental health and, you know, medical scares, but you know, like I've had numerous doctors and nurses look at my charts and be like, there's medically speaking, there's no reason you should be alive. Right. Now. Like, yeah. So the, the amount of tension and just, you know, it, it piles so much anxiety in you. Um, and same for you, like now in the back of my mind, all I can think about is how close to death I was. So I ended up having a, a procedure called ECMO and I don't remember exactly what it stands for. It's an acronym, but basically it's like dialysis where they take your blood out, run it through a machine to put oxygen back in it and then pump it back into your body. Um, I was on that machine for like 17 days. Most people are only on that machine for nine days or less. Uh, and even of that, from the study I could find, it was something like 40% of people never come off that machine and survive the first 90 days. So like I'm finding all this stuff out in the hospital and like my sister was able to come and visit me after I was awake and stuff like that. But like visiting hours are till 6 PM. So I had yeah, 6 PM until God knows when I fell asleep to just be in my head. Yeah. And yeah. you know, oh luckily I had some amazing nurses that were able to, to sit and talk with me and, keep me fairly distracted on if I felt like it was getting too heavy or, or whatever. But, um, you know, all that to say, like the, the struggle that you went through with this and then to be able to write music about it. Right. So the new single singing out signing and out. the new video or signing out, sorry. And the new, uh, video mm-hmm. coming, uh, it just, dropped, out, or Friday. Just, yeah, yeah. just dropped Friday. Yeah. So, um, you know, to be able to, already i say already because i'm not to that point yet i'm not quite 90 days out of the hospital to put that in perspective for you so i'm not quite ready to fully put it together i've got a plan for a project that i want to do um around my situation but you know for you to to come out of your situation and immediate virtually immediately be like i gotta write music about this i have to do this i have to do that speaks volumes for for the type of person that you are man well 
thank you. Um, most of it, I will say it's, it's really more for me. Like it's really therapeutic. Um, yeah. cause I don't really know what it is, but when, when I think about those moments there, the only, the closest thing that I can relate that moment to, it's like, you know, when you're like standing on a stool, like for example, you stand on a stool cause you have to like reach something in the top cabinet and your foot just slips and your whole body just like goes cold. Yep. And you know, you get those like really sharp tings in your palm of your hands. Cause you're like, Holy yep. shit, I like broke my, you know what I mean? So it was like that feeling, but for like an entire day straight. And I don't know how that feeling, like, I don't know how, what the word is for that feeling. I, I can kind of portray how it sounds to me, you know? Yeah. Um, and like, that's part of the, the music for me is like, how did this day feel? And I kind of just like put it out in the music and then, okay, but like most people aren't going to get that. Um, and it's different to everybody. So like, that's just like a personal, like that's how it, it sounds to me. And so then you put words to it. Um, words that match the feeling, I guess. Um, and for me, the weird thing about signing out is that it doesn't really match the feeling of being like scared for your life, but it really, it, it sounds to me, it sounds more like I can, I'm just like angry that this ever happened in the first place. Yeah. And it kind of comes out in the song a little bit. Um, but then again, there's like the humor in it that like, that was such a ridiculous situation that you can't help but laugh about it. Yeah. Um, which is where you get all the humor in the music video because the music video is pretty humorous. Um, especially when you get to the end and it's, it's one of the funnest things that I've like produced so far. Um, yeah. so, and again, that one song does not encompass the entire day for me. It's just like one aspect of it that I, think about the most. And it's partially because I don't want to think about the other part because that part really? sucks. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just literally today was telling a, a lady that I work with now, um, it, for lack of a better term, and I think you'll relate to this for lack of a better term, it's almost a survivor's guilt to some extent that like I yeah. was this close to death and I'm alive, but I don't understand why this even happened or what, you know, like it, it brings in this existential crisis of my mortality and everything. And you're like, well, I, I survived, but there's so many people that have something similar that didn't. So why did I survive? Like, what am I supposed to do? Yeah. Where yeah. does this all lead to? Yeah. that You bring up a really good point there because that is something that I've been trying to figure out for myself for a while, because a, a lot of times, like when I, when I mention like brain tumor, brain tumor, like publicists or PR or like, like other, you know, people that push out my music just automatically assume cancer, um, which is very much not the case. Actually, I, I tried very hard to, to differentiate like that. It wasn't cancer. Yeah. Um, for me, like the, the entire shock value in the story is all the ridiculous circumstances that surrounded that situation yeah. more so than like the actual diagnosis. I mean, yeah, it was, it was, it was bad. Like it wasn't, but it wasn't like some people really get cancer and like they do not survive and that's not something that i am trying to imitate or like play off of or use as a marketing thing it's just like i mean they suck the tumor out of my brain and just saying that is a ridiculous thing um and i don't know how else to like you know to describe it except yeah. that yeah it, it, again until and obviously neither of us wish this on anybody but until you go through something that traumatic and that deep medically, like people can't really wrap their head around the interior struggles that you have with all of it. It, it, to me, you know, like I still say, I'm not scared of the COVID virus because I'm not, it's obviously real. And I, I believed it was real before, but it's like, even now I'm like, okay, so technically I'm not supposed to be able to get it for they told me somewhere between 90 and 120 days, they just make up, you know, random shit. Three to four months is what I was told basically. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, but if I go get the vaccine, then what kind of reaction am I going to have to the vaccine since I've already almost died from the virus? Like, yeah. so it, it changes your perspective on everything. And I think that's what you and I were talking about a little bit earlier is like, now I think both of us have that appreciation for how quick life changes and how, 
just drastic it can change in the the very short amount of time. So now we both are like, why would I not take the chance to do this? Yeah, absolutely. What's the worst that can happen now? Like somebody tells me no. Okay. I don't give a shit about that. Yeah. Like way that's, that's like my ego is way less scary than like being in a, in a hospital bed again, you know, which is still very likely. Like it could still happen, you know, like that's what I'm scared of. I'm scared of the tumor regrowing and having to get surgery again because that'll knock me out for seven or eight months. And I'm scared not because of the life-threatening issues. I'm scared because it means that I won't be able to do music for a while. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, to kind of wrap up and and get us back into music here, um, you already said you've got a lot of music that you've worked on. Um, Going to plan on releasing some throughout the, the remainder of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, is the plan to do another EP or are you looking at a full length kind of what's your vision here? So originally my vision and it still might be is, uh, I'm just releasing a bunch of singles that I will compile onto an LP. Um, although I'm starting to realize that the, the songs that I've written and have some of that I've already recorded, some that I've still have demoed, they all fit into like one of two sound types. Um, and I'm wondering if I might do a split EP where it's two EPs of one particular sound, another particular sound, or just put it all together on a large EP. And you know what I mean? So I'm still, I'm still deciding on it. Um, but they're very, very like integrated and closely, closely written and closely released. So yeah, the next song I think is not dropping until June 30th. So it's probably like three weeks out for that one. Um, so let's say kind of in a perfect world, um, which obviously neither of us are living in that perfect world, yeah. but let's say in a perfect world, COVID goes away, the brain tumor is a non-issue, you know, like there's no worries of it regrowing or anything. Yeah. What would be, let's say next year, you're going to do the biggest tour you've ever done, which I don't know you're an indie, but let's say, you know, perfect world, um, yeah. you're taking... I'll let you pick. You can either open or headline, and it doesn't matter who you've got with you, but you've got three other bands with you. What would be your dream ticket to her? Oh, man. Okay, so I'm definitely opening. I'm not headlining. I can't handle that pressure yet. Uh, only because the band that I'm about to choose, I, I would never headline for them. Um, it would definitely be, right now, it would be Meet Me at the Altar, for sure. Um, oof. Meet Me at the Altar... I want to say Stan Atlantic, um, and who who would be headlining? I mean, My Chemical Romance. Yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah, I mean that's I don't know if that's that's if that's even fair though because like they're they're a special case. Yeah, they are. But we'll allow it. We said Perfect World. Yeah, or, or Paramore. I mean, I I you know I would I would regrow the brain tumor for a chance to open with Paramore. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, that's everything I've got for you for this episode. So let's do this. Uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and tell fans cause I'm going to be announcing it soon. Anyway. Okay. Uh, I'm starting a second podcast. It's going to be called musicians for mental health. Um, yeah, absolutely. Would love to have you on. Absolutely. We'll talk, you know, I, I, again, I think you and I can give that unique perspective. Like obviously mental health has played a factor in our lives pre medical issues, but like the severity of a hospitalization amplifying that, I think you and I can really get into some, some cool territory that people oh, don't yeah. know. Yeah. So. I mean, there's, there's, there's the mental health aspect. There's being an indie artist while it happens. It's, you know, some people don't have health insurance. I didn't have health insurance when I was diagnosed. I, I applied for Obamacare while I was in the waiting room, yeah. you know? So like, that's another aspect of it. So, um, like I said, we'll, we'll work together on that. I'll get with the girls and, and you and, uh, we'll, we'll link up for that for sure. But again, I appreciate your time. Um, we're definitely going to be pushing your stuff, man. I'm enjoying what I'm hearing so far. So, um, yeah, let's, let's plan on another, uh, interview coming soon is what we'll say. Yeah. Uh, I don't have an exact release date for the new podcast cause I want to get a few things you know, tightened up first, but, um, yeah, man, looking forward to, to the next single, uh, looking forward to what you've got coming up and hopefully, uh, you know, the, the live music will come back up soon and, uh, we can definitely try to get a show going and 
yeah. get out on tour, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So cool, man. I appreciate Thanks, your time. Man. Yeah, not a problem. Looking forward to it, bud. All right. Have a good one. And that was my conversation with Darrow. Again, really appreciate him taking the time to have that conversation with me. Really appreciate him being so transparent about, you know, his upbringing and his parents' history and the battles he's been through so far with the brain tumor scare and, you know, having to have the surgery to fix his jaw and things like that. Like, you know, there's definitely some artists out there that have had similar issues or been through, you know, major struggles in their life. And for whatever reason, and I'm not knocking them at all, but for, for whatever reason, they don't talk about those things and they don't, you know, let people in on that side. And, you know, everybody's in a different stage of their healing process and things like that. So again, not knocking anyone, but I, I do believe that the more open, honest, authentic, and personable that an artist can be with their fans, the more likely that fan base is to support them long-term, more likely that they are to support them financially through purchasing merch and things like that. Um, and, you know, just really think that it's a benefit to the world that we live in now with social media, everybody being so active and, and accessible. Uh, I think it's something that artists need to really take a, a long look at and consider how much of their story is out there. Again, Darrow, great conversation. We're going to have him on Musicians for Mental Health. Go like, subscribe, and follow that. Uh, we will be posting about the episodes very, very soon. And yeah, I think that's everything for this week. So I'm going to take you out with the current new lead single, which is Signing Out. And remember, guys, take care of yourselves, take care of each other, and you make the scene. Explain the situation that I'm in Inside my brain's a bunch of shit I don't think should exist Am I insane or do these people not know what it is? I think it's time I shut my eyes and try to say goodnight I don't know if it ends here I hope I wind up somewhere Just say goodbye in the prayer Walking up and my heart is coming I'll suffocate I need air But I can't get none in here It's just my luck cause I swear Time is out here Good.